Good early afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming to uh, join us in asking the question whether the Transportation Security Administer, Administration uh, plans to follow the law. Uh, I'm going to give you, I'm Jim Harper. I'm Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. I'll give you a really brief overview of things uh, before I turn things over to our, our panel of experts here today. Uh, these machines that we have in airports all over the country now are, are, are referred to by the TSA as AIT, or Advanced Imaging Technology. Uh, they used to be referred to as whole body imaging. Uh, some of us call them body scanners. Some of us call them strip search machines. Uh, they, they went into use starting in 2007 and rapidly took off uh, after the uh, attempt on air transportation in, at, at Christmas time of 2009, uh, despite the fact that that attempt came from overseas and an airport that actually used these machines overseas. There are two types of body scanners, uh, backscatter and millimeter wave. Uh, they, they are slightly different technologies, but the concept is the same, and that's to uh, broadcast radiation onto the body and collect the... Uh, the reflected radiation, either X-ray in the case of backscatter or radio frequency radiation in the case of, of millimeter wave machines. The Electronic Privacy Information Center uh, has been working on these along with many others, of course, uh, for many years because of privacy concerns, because of health concerns that they have. There are certainly also concerns about how well they actually secure air transportation. Um, cost concerns are certainly significant at a time when, when budgets are more than strained. But in November of 2010, the Electronic Privacy Information Center filed a lawsuit uh, against, the against the TSA uh, objecting to these machines on Fourth Amendment grounds and also objecting to their implementation without use of the Administrative Procedures Act, that is, uh, putting a policy in place without following the regular order that our law requires. And in July of 2011, that's about a year ago, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against EPIC on the Fourth Amendment, on the Fourth Amendment issue, unfortunately, and I think the record wasn't ripe for a Fourth Amendment uh, decision yet. But they ruled very strongly with EPIC on the question of whether the TSA should follow the Administrative Procedures Act, <clears throat> should follow notice and comment rulemaking. In fact, about two of the 18 pages of the court's decision were dedicated to the Fourth Amendment issue. 16 of the 18 were dedicated to the question of whether the TSA should follow regular procedure. I had the joy as a congressional staffer of working for the House Judiciary Committee on the Commercial and Administrative Law Subcommittee, and my area was Administrative Procedure, Title V of the U.S. Code. It's incredibly boring stuff, but it's really important. It actually is important if we're going to ask agencies to take on all the responsibilities that Congress gives them, far too many in the opinion of some, including me. If we're going to ask agencies to take on those responsibilities, we expect them to follow the procedures that lead to the best outcomes under the law. APA notice and comment rulemaking rule is what it sounds like. You provide notice of the proposed rule, you take comments from the public, and then you issue a final rule based on those comments. That is, the agency must consider those comments, and it's actually subject to a legal standard if it fails to consider those comments, the arbitrary and capricious standard. Now, that's a low standard. The agency must not have acted arbitrarily or capriciously. But at least it's a legal standard. And so far, in, in the issuance of this rule, the TSA hasn't been held to a legal standard. Instead, it's done what it wants to do. It's put millions, perhaps by this time billions, of air travelers 
through these machines and through processes that many people find disturbing. Uh, they continue to spend millions of dollars on the machines themselves and operation of the machines, but haven't taken the public input, including expert input, that might improve their decision-making in this area. Now, given the security concerns, it's entirely appropriate under the APA to do what's called a direct final rule. That's when the rule is issued right away, and then the notice and comment procedures are instituted in order to improve the rule. But even this, the agency hasn't done. A year since the D.C. Circuit Court's ruling, there has been no issuance of a notice to proposed rulemaking. There hasn't been an issuance of anything like an advance notice of a proposed rulemaking, which is a thing that agencies often do. So we think, I think everybody on this panel probably agrees, that, that a year is enough time to get the process started, a thing that the TSA hasn't done. So we're going to hear today about a lot of dimensions of this issue, and there are many more. Obviously, security is a very, a very complex area. We're going to learn about the law, um, particularly from Ginger McCall with the Electronic Privacy Information Center, who's been working on this now for years. Poor thing. Uh, and next, we'll hear from Mark Scribner with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, Scribner's been spearheading the, uh, an amicus brief that is going in today, perhaps? Filing very, very soon. It'll be filed very, very soon. Uh, that joins EPIC in asking the court to enforce its ruling. That is, asking the court to come back to the TSA and require them to move forward as, as the court asked uh, in, the, uh, in its decision a year ago. Then we'll hear from John Mueller, who, who really gets us to the substance of these, these questions, or at least many of these questions. John is, uh, well, I went to print out his, his CV, and it's a little bit larger typeface than you might expect, but it's 47 pages long. The, uh, the reason I printed it out is just to get, just to get to the, the, the top level. He's the Ralph D. Mershon Senior Research Scientist and Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies Emeritus at the Mershon Center for International Security Studies and adjunct professor at Department of Political Science at Ohio State University, also a Cato Senior Fellow. John is a, a recognized expert in security and national security, I mean, in not only security against terrorism, but national security generally, and a, a, a real expert in this area that many people come to rely on. Uh, I should have mentioned when uh, these people can be Googled, you can, you can find them on your favorite search engine. Ginger's title is Director of EPIC's uh, Open Government Program. Mark is the Land Use and, and Transportation Policy Analyst uh, at, at CEI. Uh, let's begin by hearing from Ginger with some of the background on the, the uh, machines and the case. Do you want me to speak from here? Whichever you prefer. So I'm just going to start off with sort of a brief history of EPIC's work uh, on this particular topic and how we came to file a lawsuit against TSA. In 2009, uh, the DHS announced that it was going to start a pilot program with uh, WBI technology used as a primary screening method. There had been some discussion before that of, um, of body scanner technology being used as a secondary screening method. That is, if you're going through the airport and you go through the initial screening method, which would in this case be the metal detector, uh, and then something happens, the metal detector goes off, you would be directed to a secondary screening method. So not everyone would start off by going through the body scanner. That was how it was originally envisioned. When DHS put this technology out here, out there and started discussing it, it was envisioned as a secondary screening technology. But in 2009, they announced that they were going to start a pilot program, which would make this technology the primary screening technology in airports. And at that point, EPIC sent a letter to the agency petitioning it to undertake a public notice and comment rulemaking. So the same thing that we're still asking for now about three years later. 
Uh, and we cited the fact that these machines are highly invasive. Uh, as Jim discussed, they essentially take a naked picture of a person and project it up on a computer for some TSA official to look at. Um, and we also thought that we'd like to get more details on these machines. So we filed several Freedom of Information Act requests with the agency. Uh, the agency, of course, punted its deadlines under the Freedom of Information Act, and so we ended up filing suit under that act to obtain the documents that we had requested. And when we finally got those documents in 2010, we saw some things that were not entirely unexpected, but still quite troubling. Um, we found in those documents, in the TSA's own procurement specifications and operational requirements documents, that these, these machines were not designed to detect powdered explosives. We found that the privacy filters that TSA was touting around the country saying, you know, you're safe, there are privacy filters on these machines. Those privacy filters can be turned off. We found, most troublingly perhaps, that the machines were capable of storing and transferring the images that were captured. So that very graphic naked image could be stored, it could be transferred uh, easily via USB. So we took these documents out to the public, um, and this factored into our eventual calculation to sue the agency. In 2010, the agency, DHS, decided that it was going to move forward uh, with, move, with putting the body scanners in the airports as primary screening technology. So it did its pilot program, decided that it was going to continue to push out these machines into the American airports. And Epic sent a second petition to the agency, uh, along with a bunch of other groups uh, who signed on to this petition. We asked the agency to suspend the program because of the privacy concerns. Uh, we said that the program should be suspended, the agency should reconsider. Um, and at that point, a little later in 2010, we decided that we were just going to sue the agency because they never replied to our two petitions. They continued to simply roll out the body scanners into the airports. So we filed suit, uh, as Jim mentioned, under the Fourth Amendment uh, and under the APA, uh, as well as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, and the court ruled in our favor on the APA issue. Uh, on the Fourth Amendment issue, there were some, some problems, as Jim said, that they had adopted completely the agency's statement of facts. Uh, the agency claims that there's a, an effective opt-out, and what we saw in the documents that we received back from the agency, we got thousands of pages of traveler complaints, and those complaints indicated that, in fact, there is no effective opt-out. Uh, oftentimes, travelers are not informed by the agency that they are permitted to opt-out of the machines, and even if they do opt-out, they're subject to a retaliatory and very invasive pat-down. But unfortunately, the court adopted the agency's characterization that there was an effective opt-out, and so that negated the Fourth Amendment argument, but perhaps not permanently. But they did rule in our favor, as Jim said, uh, quite exhaustively on the Administrative Procedures Act issue. Uh, and they stated that the agency had to conduct notice and comment rulemaking, quote, promptly. And they ordered the agency to do that. So it's been a year since the court's decision in July of 2011. And uh, this week, we filed a, a petition for a writ of mandamus asking the court to force the agency to comply with the court's own order that the agency undertake public notice and comment rulemaking. We've seen no indication from the agency that they have started this process. Uh, we've seen no indication from the agency that they've even taken first steps on this process. Um, and it's been a year. It's been a full 12 months since the court's order, and it's been two and a half years since Epic's original petition, and it's been three years since the agency initially started uh, to roll out the body scanners as a primary screening method. So in our mandamus, we highlighted case law that would suggest or would show, quite simply, that the agency's delay here is unreasonable. And that's the question under the law, whether or not this is a reasonable delay. Um, courts have found that a, a delay 
uh, a reasonable delay would be measured in days or weeks or months and not years. And years are what we're looking at here. Three years since the action, two and a half years since we filed our original petition, and a year since the court ordered the agency to undertake a rulemaking. The agency's delay here effectively prevents any sort of judicial review. As Jim highlighted under the APA, uh, once an agency comes to a final rule, then members of the public can take the agency to court if they feel that that rule is arbitrary or capricious. And the court can then review the agency's action. Granted, it's a rather low bar, the arbitrary and capricious bar, but it's better than nothing. It allows for some judicial review. Here, the agency has completely evaded that possibility of judicial review because they've never actually issued a final rule that a court could review. Um, they've also evaded the intent of Congress. Congress said that if you're going to, uh, to put forth a new rule, you need to issue that notice and comment rulemaking 30 days before you start actually acting on that rule. Um, that's never happened here. In fact, we're three years out from when the agency started its action. Uh, the agency's delay effectively undermines the entire purpose of public comment, which is to allow the public to weigh in on agency action to promote a democratic process in which everyone has an opportunity to let the agency know what, whether or not they feel like this is a worthwhile action, whether it's cost effective, whether it's um, worthwhile for the risks that it presents, whether it's worthwhile for the invasiveness of the action. Um, and here, the agency has simply never asked the American public, how do you feel about this? Um, and especially in light of the fact that there are ongoing radiation concerns and risks related to these machines. We've seen experts, uh, doctors Brenner, Agard, uh, and several others come out and say repeatedly that these machines present a very real radiation risk, especially to pregnant women, to children, to the elderly, to people who are immunocompromised because they've had some sort of uh, disease or cancer, um, and the machines present that very real radiation risk, but that risk has never been properly addressed by the agency. To date, the agency has never done a real independent review of that risk. Um, they've relied almost entirely on the vendor-supplied numbers. Uh, there's never been any independent review. And that, in particular, uh, is something that the court should take into account, because uh, in a writ, in, under a writ of mandamus, uh, health or safety risk is something that would definitely weigh in favor of the court stepping in and enforcing its own order. Uh, we've also seen that continual evidence that these machines are ineffective. Uh, what we saw in, our procurements, in the procurement specifications that we obtained from TSA is that these machines were not designed to detect powdered explosives. Uh, and further evidence has borne that out. Both the GAO and the DHS Inspector General's Office have issued reports stating that there are very strong vulnerabilities in these machines. Um, and those vulnerabilities cut against the, the reasons to use these machines. If the machine is not effective at picking up powdered explosives, which are the threat that we face today, if these machines present very real radiation risks, if they're very costly, if they're very invasive, then why are we putting these machines in our airports? And that's the reason why the public should be allowed to comment on this. The public should be allowed to weigh those risks and those supposed benefits and, and let the agency know exactly how it feels. So, thank you. Well, thank you all, and uh, thank you uh, to the Cato Institute and Jimber, uh, Ginger and Epic. Uh, you guys have done excellent work on this, and we're happy to uh, join you with our amicus brief. Um, so let me just first start by saying it is CI's position that 
in the uh, uh, President Bush and Congress's reaction to the September 11th terrorist attacks, that they made a massive error in nationalizing airport security and creating TSA in the first place. Just throwing that out there. Um, so I'm going to briefly give a background um, on our concerns with respect to the current state of air transport in the United States, and then uh, sort of go through, um, briefly go through the uh, uh, amicus brief for uh, Epic's petition. So every day, 1.8 million travelers fly through American airspace, which works out to about 700 million flyers per year. And um, in addition to air passengers, uh, air, air travel is not often thought of as a significant freight mode. But according to the latest commodity flow survey that's conducted about every five years by the Bureau of Transportation Statistics, air moves Two point, or sorry, $252 billion worth of freight annually. And while truck uh, is the dominant value mode uh, at over $8.3 trillion worth of freight moved annually, uh, truck freight value per ton uh, rolls in at about uh, $950. In contrast, air freight value by ton rolls in at about $70,000. And if you think about it, uh, People are moving things by air. It's not just speed, uh, but it's also security. Uh, air offers certain uh, a level of security that you cannot have in ports and rail yards at truck stops. Um, and so we're moving a lot of uh, very high-tech electronic equipment, pharmaceuticals, currency, uh, things of that nature. Now, uh, according to the uh, to a 2011 report, I believe, uh, from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, civil aviation overall, so this is freight um, and uh, passenger, uh, it contributes $728.2 billion to the economy, and that works out to about 5.2% of total GDP. Um, I think Ginger did an excellent job explaining the privacy and security impl uh, implications of these AIT machines, so I'll just add a little bit about what TSA policies are doing to America's air travel system, uh, and then briefly explain the arguments contained in our amicus brief. So uh, TSA's ever-expanding passenger screening areas harm traditional airport management airline cooperation. If the United States were to denationalize airport security and return to the airport airline consortium model for the provision of security services, these airport real estate problems could be uh, much better addressed. Um, another, another problem that we have is that TSA recently stood up something called the Certified Cargo Screening Program, which aims to achieve 100% physical cargo screening. That's a, it's a, it's a lofty goal. Um, but the new mandates under uh, CCSP require technology that does not even yet exist uh, for bar, uh, bulk cargo screening because we're talking about things coming off a train in pa or sorry, a uh, either off a train and going to a, uh, a truck to uh, airplane on pallets, or it's coming off an airplane and they're trying to scan these pallets with machines that don't really, uh, aren't really designed to do that. Uh, moreover, in addition to being high value, a significant percentage of air freight is also extremely time sensitive, as I mentioned. Um, and so even minor delays due to physical uh, screening can have a huge impact on that air freight's value. A Congressional Research Service analysis found uh, that the total cost to airlines, freight forwarders, and shippers uh, could amount to several billion dollars annually as these CCASP mandates are unfunded. Um, now I'll go into the amicus brief, and as Ginger noted, in July 2011, the D.C. Circuit uh, of Appeals, uh, Court of Appeals, ruled that the TSA impermissibly failed to engage in notice and comment rulemaking 
regarding the uh, agency's use of these uh, AIT scanners in airports. Um, so Jim said at the beginning that he finds Title V really boring. Uh, CEI, we're a regulatory think tank. I find it incredibly exciting. Um, and that's why we were happy to, uh, to join Epic in this. Um, so the court ordered TSA to promptly commence this uh, notice and comment rulemaking regarding the use of AIT scanners. Uh, and this reflects the basic policy rationale of the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, which assures agencies like the TSA have to consider the public's views. Uh, the APA empowers courts to compel agency action when it's unreasonably delayed, as Ginger said. Um, and despite public assurances to the contrary, and I believe it was, a, it was their November response where they said they actually had a very preliminary, uh, preliminary draft rule back, going back to August 2011, um, yet the TSA has failed to act. Um, and they've, uh, they've pointed to a lack of resources as a justification for its delay. But uh, it has a massive discretionary budget, and, that, and that's uh, larger than uh, that of the entire federal judiciary. NTSA has a staff larger than that of the Departments of Labor, Energy, Education, Housing and Urban, uh, Urban Development, and State combined. And this lack of capacity has not prevented TSA from doing other things. I mentioned CCSP, but it's also, uh, it's also rolled out an increasing number of these AIT scanners, and it started the new pre-check program uh, for frequent flyers. Uh, members of Congress have expressed concerns about the use of these AIT scanners for passenger screening, and many have noted the cost of these scanners, which has been projected to be uh, $500 million by the end of 2013. Uh, and as Ginger said, we don't even know if these things work. And according to John Micah, at least, when he had the uh, Government Accountability Office audit these machines, he said uh, that in a hearing that if the American public could find out uh, the failure rate of these things, they would be outraged. Um, others have emphasized the very real privacy uh, risks uh, you know, uh, with these things, and in addition to health. Um, and while... Uh, and again, like I said, that these things may not even work and be effective at screening for explosives. So what we believe and why we filed this amicus brief is that the court should set a timetable for the TSA to open public rulemaking because it would allow facts such as these to be brought to the agency's attention. And if TSA cannot justify the use of these body scanners to the public, then further court supervision could be required. Um, and I encourage you, there were handouts of the amicus brief. I have the most current one, but it's essentially uh, the same as the one out there. I encourage you to read it. Uh, other uh, individuals and groups signing on are uh, Robert L. Crandall, who's the former chairman and CEO of American Airlines, uh, the National Association of Airline Passengers, Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, and Americans for Tax Reform, and others. There were nine additions to this. Um, so thank you, and uh, thank you, Jim. Okay, I'm going to like talk uh, less about uh, invasions of privacy and in, instead talk about invasions of pocketbooks. Um, I uh, finished this book, which actually looks like this is what the book looks like. It actually looks like a book as opposed to a squeeze sort of thing, called Terror, Security, and Money. And Mark Stewart and I uh, published it last year with Oxford University Press. And what we tried to do in the book is to apply standard cost-benefit analysis, standard risk analysis to homeland security issues, which is essentially has not been done. Uh, by the people in charge of spending essentially a, a, a huge amounts of money. Our calculations are that the increase of spending for domestic homeland security by not only DHS but by the FBI and intelligence and, uh, um, uh, and, the, and the military within the country totals over a trillion dollars since 
So it's not, even in Washington, that's a big number, I think. Um, anyway, I'd like to deal with a couple of issues. Uh, one is, it's already been brought up a little bit, do they work? Uh, and both, both, uh, both, people, both people before me but sort of suggested there were problems with this. The GAO did a study, which is classified, that came out in February or, Mar or January this year, uh, apparently uh, that was the one that Micah is referring to, uh, obviously questioning them. But let me give you some other examples. Um, or another example, this is uh, John Pistoli was, uh, John Pistol was um, interviewed on the um, news hour, uh, and uh, Margaret Warner asked him, a lot of passengers are worried whether these procedures are proportional to the threat. Very good question. Uh, just wondering, uh, would they actually work? Would they have caught the Christmas Day bomber? And he basically said, I know the threats are real, uh, which it doesn't have anything to do with the question, uh, and I believe the techniques are the best we have, which is probably true. The question is, are they good enough? Would they have caught it? Uh, she asked the question again, uh, are there other examples of people who have gotten through expl with explosive material that weren't caught, that uh, would have been caught by these new methods? And he again punts. Uh, we know the GAO and the Homeland Security Accounting Inspector General, um, uh, I can't go into details, uh, but some of these results of those that, uh, uh, that should, should say we should improve our situation. Um, essentially, he's, he's, he's not answering the question, uh, which obviously, from my standpoint, really suggests that some of the comments we've already heard about these things don't work, and the incredibly expensive things don't work or don't work effectively is important. But also in that interview is another issue, which is extremely important, a phrase that virtually never has come up since 9-11, or for that matter, much before, which is acceptable risk. How much risk is acceptable? Uh, Pistol basically gave us a pretty good indication of that. Because Warner asked him, uh, do you know how much radiation an individual is exposed to and how that measures up to what is allowable, what's safe? And what he said was, yes, there is a danger, but it's acceptable, acceptable risk. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, things are different on this. Um, anyway, that's his, her statement. And he says, we have seen a number of studies by the N N National Institute of Standards, uh, NIST, FDA, Johns Hopkins, and so forth, and the risk is very, very minimal. Um, and uh, well within the safety limits that have been set. In other words, although there is a risk, it's not zero, uh, it's, it's small enough to be acceptable. So the question then becomes, um, what does that mean uh, in terms of uh, the real world? Well, a radiologist, it's possible to calculate what the risk is by using standards that are basically accepted. There, there are people who disagree with it, but anyway, basic standards are frequently there. And a radiologist at Arizona State University said, the chance of getting cancer from a single scan is one in 30 million. That's a one in every 30 million, by these standards, one every, out of every 30 million passengers that goes through the scanner will get cancer. Um, and uh, therefore, that's acceptable, according to, uh, uh, according to Pistol. One out of every 30 million people being killed is okay uh, by cancer. It's well, well within all the safety standards that have been set. Then, Reyes goes one step further, uh, that the uh, recent experience suggests the chance of being on an airliner that is subsequently blown up by a terrorist is about the same, one in 30 million. Uh, in other words, totally acceptable from the standpoint of the standards that Pistol has already accepted. Uh, so, so therefore, the risk of being killed by a terrorist in an uh, airliner is already acceptable by the standards before you apply the full body scanners. Now. Um, uh, let me um, indicate that that's basically the way you have to look at it. The question is not, are we safer, but how safe are we? And the, the, you can answer the question, how safe are we? You can say your chance of being killed by a terrorist in the United States is one in 3.5 million per year. Uh, 
that's where you should start. Then the next question is, do we, how much money do you want to spend to make that down to 1.4 million, or 1, 1, 1 in 4 million, and so forth? But it's basically not, it's just not there. It's not in the discussion. Of course we can do things to make ourselves safer. We can spend billions and trillions more to make ourselves safer. We can hire one security guard. That makes us safer microscopically. The question is, how safe are we, and how much is an additional expenditure uh, going to reduce the risk to be justified? Um, I was going to say that before the House um, um, in hearings of the House Oversight Committee last March. Uh, and then they called me up a couple of times and said, are you really going to say your chance of being killed is one in 3.5 million per year? And I said what I just said. And uh, then they disinvited me. So con <laughs> Congress has now been preserved uh, and saved. Okay, finally, uh, the question also is, are they cost effective? We've already indicated all three of us raised doubts about their, their effectiveness, that they, they don't work. They don't work effectively. But let's forget that. Let's assume they really do work. Now, so the question is, are they cost effective? That is to say, given their cost, is the reduction of risk worth the money you're spending on them? If they're really cheap, even if they don't reduce risk very much, they might well be worth it. If they're expensive, questionably. Uh, this has been published in a peer-reviewed article uh, journal. I have a couple copies along. Uh, which is online, the Journal of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. We had six peer reviewers for it, so we figured we must be doing something right or else they got the wrong reviewers. Uh, and it's also um, summarized in a more uh, easier to understand version uh, in the Terror Security and Money book, over six pages and so forth. So what I want to do is just sort of go through the way we looked at this. And I think um, I won't go into a lot of detail, and I don't have very much time, but what you can get is a basic feel for the way these questions should be evaluated. That doesn't mean that everything we say is right, uh, but everything we say is transparent. Every assumption we make, every, every place where we get some sort of idea uh, of estimating uh, figures is, is footnoted. So they, someone else can go through and say, no, that's wrong, I think it this way, we should emphasize this more, you underestimate that, and so forth, fine. Uh, but it's very clear, it's not classified. Um, okay, um, this, is, this would be a way of looking at it. Uh, first of all, what you have to do is find out what the cost of the pat body scanner pat-down is. It comes out to be, when fully deployed, and according to DHS, it'll cost about $1.2 billion per year. Uh, they could cut that down by not deploying it every place, but then the terrorists obviously can go into airport and say, hey, there isn't one here, let's get on this plane. Uh, so consequently, you really have to have it everywhere, including overseas. Um, now, $1.2 billion is actually a really interesting number. Uh, 1.2 billion a year is the budget for the entire Los Angeles police force, which has 30,000 employees. Okay, the second thing is, suppose there is, that you have to estimate, is what if there is an airliner blown up? How, well, how much will the cost of that be? Uh, a RAND study suggests it'd be about $15 billion. That would include the aircraft, include the cost of the human being, beings killed, but also the ancillary effects, people not flying airplanes, people being scared, reduction in, in GDP or whatever. Uh, we estimate it, we put a bigger, higher number than that, about 26 billion. Uh, and you might want to argue that it's somewhat higher than that or somewhat lower than that, but that's, uh, it's sort of a range of estimates and this is sort of in the middle of the range of estimates, um, though you could certainly argue it's considerably lower than that. The cost of the airliner would only be you know, a few million dollars. I mean, it's not very much money compared, obviously, to that. Um, and the cost of lives would be significant, but the, the biggest effect uh, would be on sort of the ancillary side effects. Okay, now, <clears throat> we have to, now we're getting into the analysis a bit, a bit deeper. With that assumption, 
both of which can be discussed and analyzed, uh, we further assume the following. Uh, first of all, <coughs> there already are security measures in place, uh, as the TSA constantly tells us, totally correctly. Um, and some of them are not designed to prevent this. Some are like dealing with baggage and so forth. Uh, but there are various things. That you try to have no-fly lists, and you have these various kinds of screening. Um, and we, we say, uh, we argue that about 10 of these measures before you get on the airport, airplane, are designed to catch these guys before they can do anything. Now, what we assume in this is the probability of each of these layers of catching the guy is very small, one chance in 10. Only one chance in 10 they'll be caught by the, by the intelligence, the FBI, by the no-fly list, by the uh, uh, behavioral detection officers, and so forth. Uh, one chance in 10 for each of those. So, so, they're, so we're assuming we're biasing things in favor of finding body scanners to be cost-effective. Uh, secondly, there's the onboard issue. Once they get onboard, then what, then what are the barriers? Well, the, uh, we already know there's been two efforts, the shoe bomber and the... Um, and the uh, underwear bomber, uh, and in both cases what happened was they were caught by the passengers. Um, and so, uh, so the, the, uh, the probability, uh, the, the, so the, so, but we're assuming now that instead of essentially 100% they'll be caught by the passengers, uh, that they will be, uh, there's only 50-50 chance that they'll be caught by passengers. They're lighting themselves on fire, and somehow they're able to do that without anybody stopping them. 50-50 chance of, of the, only of them stopping them. So we think that's biasing very much, you know, the probability would probably be much higher than 50%. Um, okay, the chance then of, there's also a layer which the TSA doesn't use, which is the incompetence of the terrorists. Uh, de detonating the bomb, even if you're not interfered with by passengers, is really very difficult. Uh, because you have to use uh, detectors that are not metallic because you can't get them through the metal detector, which was there before 9-11. So uh, setting this stuff off is not easy. And nobody's been able to do it so far, essentially, in the United States, or in these, in these two planes coming to the United States. Um, and uh, we're assuming that, nonetheless, that 75% chance of actually setting off this very difficult uh, bomb. And then finally, um, it does not follow that because a bomb goes off in an airliner, that the airliner goes down. There have been cases where the whole, back, you know, uh, uh, doors flew out of uh, airplanes and they still landed. Only, uh, there was one case where a huge hole opened up in an airplane over the Pacific. The pressure was such that it sucked several passengers and their seats out, but the plane still landed, went back to Japan and landed. Um, there was just two, two years ago, the, the uh, fuselage opened up on a Southwest airline. People saw blue sky. The, um, the uh, uh, cockpit, the uh, cabin depressurized, but the plane still landed. There was no harm. So it doesn't follow because you blow something up. Uh, set off a bomb that's going to actually down the airliner. Um, the tests on both the underwear bomber and on the uh, shoe bomber are that if the bombs had gone off, there's a good chance it would not have downed the airliner. It would have caused a problem. Could have killed some people, obviously, right next to it, uh, passengers, but it would not have downed, it might, might very well not have downed the airliner. So summarizing, uh, if we put this together, um, our estimates are that the, the chance that the attack will fail due to these things is 90%, 90.2%. .2%. This is due to the existing security measures. It's due to the uh, terrorist, in that, which is not the, fir the first of the two bullets under which we further assume, the onboard and pre-board. That's the first thing, existing security measures. Then the incompetence, and then also the diff difficulties of setting off a bomb that will be sufficiently big to, uh, to blow up the airliner. 
Okay, then, then what we finally assume, and we've got various reasons for why we come to this conclusion, okay, let's assume that the body scanner, a pat-down, reduces risk almost completely. It's, the reduction of risk is now 90%. We've reduced, instead of 100% of chance of blowing it up, it's only, not, uh, uh, it's, uh, only 10% or 9.8%. And let's assume that, and we have reason to come to this, that, that basically the total remaining risk will be reduced, to essentially to, uh, will be reduced by the body scanners, bringing it basically to a position of uh, almost 100% safety. Um, the, uh, then what you can do is basically say, okay, put this all together, and I can explain this in detail if you want, but it's in the book, and I hope re very readable, the book is designed to be read by real people. Um, assuming we have applying assumptions that substantially bias the case in favor of finding body scanners to be cost effective. That is to say, we assume there's a quite a bit of risk still, even after the other measures are in. And we also assume that the body scanners are almost completely successful in closing the gap of risk. How many otherwise successful attacks would they have to prevent to be cost effective? And it comes out to be about one every other year. If you really think that there would be an under successful underwear bomber, blowing up an airliner every other year, there have been two attempts in 12 years, both of them abject failures, then they might begin to begin cost effective. So it, um, for some people that may be good enough to spend the money on the, the $1.2 billion, for most people I suspect not. But anyway, that's the kind of analysis that you'd want to do. One final comment, uh, for also from the, the NewsHour, um, uh, Margaret Warner asked him, but uh, these new methods can't catch uh, any somebody in hidden something hidden in a body cavity equals wreck them incidentally uh, <clears throat> and pistol said uh, correct uh, so what's the next step um, well I made a quick calculation of how many uh, latex uh, the cost of latex uh, gloves exam gloves from Amazon um, for a billion passengers which is more or less where the passenger uh, thing is now either in the United States or, or, or uh, overseas and it comes to about $500 million per year, you could probably get them cheaper. However, if you do go into the latex glove situation, it will be absolutely completely successful at stopping uh, attacks on, on airliners uh, because they will, uh, no one will fly anymore, the airliners will be completely grounded uh, and will all finally be completely safe. Okay, thanks. <laughs>